Well, good morning. Um, it's a privilege to be here with you this morning. Um, as I've said to some of you already, I feel like I've heard so many good things about Lexington Baptist Church, um, and it's a, it's a privilege to, to be here. Um, for those of you who don't know me, uh, which is most of you here this morning, um, my name's Thomas Long. Uh, I serve as uh, the student ministries pastor at Emmanuel Baptist Church. Um, that may sound familiar for, for some of you. Um, your senior pastor, uh, Michael Saunders, uh, had my job before he came here. Um, and so I've gotten to, to interact with Saunders a couple times, and um, I feel like we just have a really good connection. And he came and preached at our church a couple weeks ago, and uh, it's a privilege to be here. Um, a little more about me. Uh, my wife, Jessica, is here with me. Um, if you, you may notice we're expecting our first one. We're about two months out. Um, first child is on the way. Um, before I was doing uh, youth ministry at Emmanuel, uh, I worked for uh, Liberty University in the School of Divinity, and part of my job there was I would travel and preach, um, so I just will say it is kind of nice being on the road again. Uh, it kind of feels like the good old days. Um, but this morning, I'm going to continue on uh, in the series that you all have been in, talking about the church. Uh, I'm going to look at Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 9. Uh, so you can go ahead and flip there this morning. We're going to talk about um, how the church loves. All right, now, as, as you flip there, one thing that I think is important to understand is that um, this sermon, I have preached a version of this before um, at, at my church. Uh, and this sermon was written at a time when our church was mixed and, and mired in um, conflict. And I was scheduled to preach. I had free reign to kind of preach on whatever I wanted to, um, and all I wanted to do was point us back to loving one another again. Um, how does the church love one another? Um, I'll, I will say uh, it's still a work in progress. Um, this is something that develops over time. Um, churches will get this right, and churches will get this wrong. Churches will find this easy to do, and churches will find this hard to do. Um, but if, if we think about loving one another, if you've ever broken a bad habit or formed a good one, one thing that you will have learned is that doing something when it's hard is the most important time to do it. Um, and so we'll talk about love this morning. We'll also talk about conflict. But if you want a, a theme for this morning, right, we have to love one another. The church has to love even when it's difficult to do that. Uh, now, as we think about what that looks like and what that means and, and how relationships work this morning, um, I want to share just a short story with you all. Uh, in 2012, uh, Google started a data analysis project known internally as Project Aristotle. Uh, the purpose of the project was to analyze as much data as they could in order to find out just what exactly makes a good team. Google's a huge company, lots of different teams working on lots of different things. They want to analyze all of the teams that they have within their company and figure out what makes a good one, what makes a bad one. And so Google looked at around 100 active teams within their organization, um, and they pulled data over the course of about 10 years uh, before making conclusions and reporting their findings. And so th this was a project that spanned a huge amount of time likely cost millions of dollars to fund. But what I thought was interesting about this project is that their findings were something that maybe should have been obvious all along. Um, 
what Google found is that the individual traits and tendencies of the people on a team actually contribute very little to the team's success, right? It, it has very little to do with personality types, background, um, all of these things that we might try to look for in picking a team. Um, a manager in Google's analytics team put it this way. Um, she said, we looked at 180 teams from all over the company. We had lots of data, but there was nothing showing that a mix of specific personality types or skills or backgrounds made any difference. The who part of the equation didn't seem to matter. So what does matter? What makes a good team? What's the, the silver bullet that is like the thing that will make an effective team? Well, what Google found is that more than anything, a sense of what they referred to as psychological safety uh, was the thing that makes the difference. Uh, now, that's a, that's a big word, um, a big phrase there. So what, what is psychological safety? Well, in layman's terms, it's an environment in which there is a shared belief that the team is a safe place for interpersonal risk-taking. It's a kind of atmosphere that's created when the people in the room know that each of the other members is willing to be honest with the other and that they have each other's best, best interests at heart. Uh, even if they disagree um, or if somebody makes a mistake, that they're looking out for one another, that it is a safe place for them to be a part of that team. Now, what Google found is that the most effective teams are the ones that are mindful, um, that all members should contribute to the conversation equally, that they should respect one another's emotions, uh, and that it has less to do with who is in a team and more with how the members interact with one another. Now, the reason that this creates such effective teams is that the people involved are not just along for the ride, right? They're not just punching the time card. They're committed to one another and they actually desire to work collaboratively and creatively together. Um, maybe you've experienced something like this yourself. Uh, maybe you've had a, a workplace or a study group or a sports team um, or some other kind of team that you've been a part of where you actually looked forward to doing the work with the people involved, right? Now, if you've had that, you've probably found that it's in that environment that you do your best work. Right, the sports team that you play on where you love all of the other members of the team, you know you work well together, you actually play better as an individual because you're a part of that team. Now maybe you've experienced the opposite of that, right? Maybe you felt nothing but dread and anxiety on your way into work, um, right? Or nothing but dread and anxiety on your way to a sports practice, um, right? And if you felt that, you've probably noticed that you are much less likely to do your best in that environment. Um, so, why do I share all this with you? It's because Google spent millions trying to learn something that Christians should already know to be true. Uh, when we think about this in terms of the kinds of environments that we see within the church, we know that the best and most effective churches are the ones where people can be honest with each other where they have one another's best interests at heart, and where they're committed to co-laboring in the gospel together, even when they struggle to find commonality on contentious issues. Right, so as we, as we put this in the context of the church, right, and how this might look, if we think about this in church context, right, it's not about, okay, well, we gotta get these people out of the church, 
and we got to get these people in, um, right? People who feel that VBS should be this way need to go, and people that feel like VBS need to be this way, we need to have come in, right? It, it's less about who we have and who we don't, and it's about learning to co-labor with those who the Lord places us with, right, for however long we are with them. Now, one example that we see of this is found in Philippians 4, verses 2 through 9. And that's where we'll be looking this morning. Um, but before we read, however, I just want to point out one quick thing contextually before we read these verses. Um, one thing that we see time and again in a lot of Paul's writing is the way that he addresses issues of contention and conflict within the church. Much of his writings are dealing with issues here and issues there. And Philippians 4, 2 through 9 is one of those passages. Um, you may have read these verses before, right? Some of you heard me mention Philippians 4, 2 through 9, and you saw it in your bulletin. Like, I know those verses, um, right? They, they may sound familiar to you, specifically if, if you've recently offered your condolences or, or, or tried to comfort somebody who's mourning or hurting or going through a difficult time. Um, you might pray for the peace which surpasses all understanding. That's, that's coming out of these verses. But what you may not have realized as you read these verses is that Paul is addressing conflict in this passage, right? The conflict is between two women, um, Euodia and Syntyche. And um, the way that, that Paul names each of them, rather than speaking generally about them, may imply that whatever the conflict is between these two, um, right, we don't know for sure what it is. Paul doesn't reference exactly what the conflict is. But whatever it is, it may have extended into the church at large. In other words, people may have been picking sides and dividing the church over, well, I'm team Euodia, or I'm team Syntyche. Um, but even if not, Paul felt that this conflict was significant enough that he needs to address it in verses 2 through 3. And then, as we think about how that applies to the rest of these verses, verses 4 through 9 is actually his practical counsel for how they can find commonality and agreement moving forward. So keeping that in mind, let's read together Philippians chapter 4, uh, verses 2 through 9. Um, you can read along with me. It says, I entreat Euodia, and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers, whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your heart and your mind in Christ Jesus. Finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, if there's any excellence, there's anything worthy of praise, think about these things. What you have learned and received and heard and seen in me, practice these things, and the God of peace will be with you. So, as I mentioned earlier, the first thing that we should understand about this passage is that this passage is addressing conflict between two particular individuals within the church, Euodia and Syntyche. Um, again, we don't know for sure exactly what that conflict is, but what we should make sure that we don't miss as we start to think about this is that Paul begins by urging them 
to agree. Uh, the ESV uses the word entreat. Uh, and if you're not familiar with that word, it essentially means that Paul is pleading with them. He's urging them to find agreement. Right, what I think is essential to understanding what Paul is asking for here is that in verse 2, notice that Paul urges both women equally. Right? He's not saying, I urge one to give in to the other. Um, I urge Euodia to give in to Syntyche. I urge Syntyche to give in to Euodia. He's asking them to find unity together. Understand also that Paul does not ask these two women to find agreement by any human means, right? He urges them to agree in the Lord, right? In other words, this kind of agreement is not something that's going to come naturally for most of us, right? Really for any of us. We, we like to be right, and we want to win, right? Our sinful nature urges us to dominate others rather than to seek their good. But when we find our agreement in and through the Lord, he can produce a kind of unity that is wholly unique within the church. He can produce a kind of love for one another within the church that you won't find anywhere else. So what does that mean for us today? What it means is that unity in the church and agreement in Christian relationships and love in Christian relationships is not reached by one person winning the argument, right, and forcing the other one into submission, right? It is an act of co-laboring and commonality that requires Christian love and faithfulness from both parties. Now, if we look then at verse 3, one question that may arise is that when Paul refers to a true companion in verse 3, so he says, yes, I ask you also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the Gospels together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. So you might get to the, the, the true companion element of that verse and say, who is Paul talking about here? Right? Who is he talking to? Uh, and this is normally, right, if you're, if you're up on your hermeneutics in your Bible study, uh, this is normally where you might do a word study uh, to try to get some clarity as to what the original language is saying. I say, well, I'll flip to the Greek. I'll open my concordance. I'll figure it out. Um, but the word physigus uh, that Paul uses here um, only appears once in the New Testament, and it's in this verse. Uh, and there's still some conversation back and forth between scholars as to whether or not this word is a name or is referring to a kind of person. Um, that being said, there are a few uh, likely explanations for who Paul is talking to. Uh, the first is that Paul is talking to whoever is going to help mediate the discussion and subsequent work of reconciliation between these two women, um, right? Paul could be talking to a person that he knows by name, right? In other words, somebody whose name is Syzygis, um, or he might be talking to whoever that future mediator happens to be, right? He's sending this letter off, right? And he's, he might be addressing, hey, whoever it is that's mediating this discussion, here's the advice that I have for you. Um, but the other possibility is that Paul is speaking to each member in the church in Philippi as individuals, that he's speaking directly to his original readers as people who will take part in the, the mediating of this conflict within their church. Now, I personally think that both explanations have merit. 
and I'm kind of willing to take a both-and approach here, but I think that the advice that Paul gives in verse 3 and the verses that follow provide some very practical insights for those who are in a kind of one-on-one mediating position, right? But that these verses also are helpful for the church as a whole. That wherever you fall in this, maybe there's a conflict you're a part of or a conflict that you're mediating, right? There's some very directly helpful things for you in here. Um, maybe you're like, I'm, I'm good with everybody else. Um, like me and all my friends and all my church people, like we get along. We don't really have any huge issues. There's good stuff in here for you too. Um, what follows in verses 4 through 9 is, is practical counseling advice for those who want to do the work required to find commonality and unity within the church and who want to be a part of a church that loves other people well. Now, I think it may actually be a good thing that we don't know exactly what the conflict between these two women was, right? This way, we're not tempted to say, well, Paul's advice would work for them, but it wouldn't work for me, right? That, yeah, okay, I get that Paul is giving some advice to these two women who, who are, you know, angsty towards one another, but if Paul really understood my situation, he would know that I'm right and wouldn't ask me to find agreement with somebody else, right? No, Paul gives intentionally broad advice here um, because um, it's, it's good advice for all of us, right? It's intended to be a salve for the various kinds of wounds that we would acquire while co-laboring for the gospel with other believers, other people um, who sometimes um, sin, who sometimes get it wrong, who sometimes harm us, whether intentionally or unintentionally. Um, Verse 4 immediately reminds me of a point that I made a few weeks ago um, at IBC when I preached on Psalm 145. That God is infinitely worthy of our praise. I'll read verse 4 again. It says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. And so what Paul is saying here is that there will never be a time that we can offer up praise to God where he won't deserve it. That no matter what's going on around us, no matter what's going on in our lives, when we're praising God, He is worthy of that praise, always. And so, because of this, we can rejoice always, even when things are hard and relationships are strained, even when it might be difficult for us to love other people. Um, Euodia and Syntyche were in conflict with one another, but even in the midst of their conflict, they could find commonality in the way that they offered praise to their Heavenly Father. They could rejoice together in what God had done, and they could praise the Lord in their lives through the way that they co-labored in the gospel together. In fact, uh, what Paul will tell us as we continue reading through these verses is that it is this shared desire to offer praise and to dwell on what is good that will help these two sisters find, find commonality in Christ. So if we look ahead then to verse 5, We see that verse 5 talks about letting our reasonableness be known to everybody. Um, So the question that follows when we read that verse, right, is what does it look like to be reasonable, right? And we might ask that question for different reasons, right? Some of us might ask that question 
saying, like, I, I just, I want to be reasonable. And so I want to know, like, what Paul means when he says to be reasonable. I want the example. I want to follow that. I want to do it, um, right? And then some of us might ask that question, right, saying, I don't really want to be reasonable. Um, I really want to have my way and get my way. So what's the bare minimum that I can do and be reasonable, right? But regardless of, of why we might ask that question, I think first we should understand the meaning of the word that Paul uses here, right? The word that Paul uses um, is epiakes, uh, which is a word that's used to describe those who are gentle, mild, forbearing, fair, reasonable, right? In other words, Paul is asking for the people of the church in Philippi to be known for their gentleness, their, their fairness towards others that they should be reasonable in their conversations with each other and also in the way that they present themselves to the world outside the church. Understand that this command is for us too, right? Paul is talking to individuals here, but he is also talking about the church as a whole. And what that means for us as not just individuals, but as the church, is that we have to make intentional decisions to be gentle and reasonable with each other and with those around us. And when we do that, we can actually start to influence um, the perception that people have of our local churches, right? Your church here in Lexington, um, my church in Richmond, but also of the big C church as a whole. So as you think about this, I'm going to ask each of you to be a little bit introspective this morning, right? Ask yourself, Am I known for my reasonableness? Would those around me describe me as reasonable? Have I been gentle in the way that I've treated people recently? These are tough questions to ask. And if you're struggling to ask them, I, I would encourage you to ask somebody else. Like, am I reasonable? Would you describe me in that way? Um, and the answer to that question might be hard to hear. Um, but if we want to co-labor with one another effectively, we have to do the work of seeking reasonableness within ourselves and within one another because we know that when we let that describe us, when we put ourselves under the, the, the weight of that description, right, it pushes us to love other people well. Now, next, in verses 6 through 7, uh, Paul talks about worry and anxiety, as well as the peace that God can offer believers in the midst of those things. So I'll read those again for us uh, really quickly. It says, Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your requests be made known to God, and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And so the main point of what Paul tells the church in Philippi in these two verses is that prayer is the antidote to worry. Right? The reason that Paul needs to remind them of this is that in the midst of conflict among believers, right, we have a tendency to worry. Right? We think things like, what if they don't listen or they don't understand? Or what if my gentleness is met with hostility? Um, what if I show them love and they don't love me back? 
what if my vulnerability opens me up to being hurt again? What if we never recover from, from the wound in this relationship? And so all of these questions that start to swim around in our mind as we deal with the, the, the moments where loving one another gets hard, this is why Paul takes the time to remind his audience that as they do the work of reconciliation, and as they seek unity, and as they seek to love one another, that they should pray about their concerns. But even more than that, once they've offered up their worries, given them to the Lord in prayer, that they can rest in the peace that only God can supply. A peace that is so pure that it surpasses all understanding. And so verse 8, then, is the second piece of advice that Paul offers to those who are seeking to find commonality. He tells us that our mind should focus on six distinct qualities in order to experience and remain in the peace that God supplies. Right? So he's saying, offer up your worries in prayer, rest in the peace that God supplies, and as you rest in the peace that God supplies, here's what you can pursue. Here's what you can run after. Here's what you can dedicate yourself to. So he gives six things, and I'll, I'll break them down one by one. Uh, the first is things that are true. Um, these are things that we know to always be true. Right? An example might be the fact that we know that God is inherently good, uh, that there is no evil in him. And so we can rest in the truth that God always desires to bring about good things for his people and that he is always capable of doing so. The second is things that are honorable. Uh, these are things that are noble or worthy of respect. Uh, these could be things that we know about God. These should be things that we know about God. But they can also be things that we know about one another. Right? Maybe there's someone that you're in conflict with um, who you've seen be noble or honorable. Right? And, and it actually can be helpful to remind yourself that they are capable of such things. And, and that you can commit yourself to being honorable in your interactions with them. Uh, the, the third is things that are just. Uh, this is where we have an opportunity to commit ourselves to doing the right thing and to doing right by other people. Right? Even in the midst of adversity and conflict, believers can commit themselves to doing what they know from God's word and the leading of the Holy Spirit is right and just. We can pursue things that are just. Now the fourth thing is things that are pure. Uh, pureness here is talking about holiness. And so we can remind ourselves of God's holiness, right? remind ourselves that God is holy, God is pure, Right? But we can also commit ourselves to seeking purity in our hearts, in our actions, and in our intentions. That day by day, as I grow, I want to be more like Christ. I want to be made more and more holy. I want Christ's likeness to define more of what I, not just what I do, but also what I think and how I interact. Uh, the fifth is things that are lovely. Uh, this word is used only here in the New Testament, another, another word that's unique to this passage. And what it's referring to is things that are um, appealing, attractive, or beautiful. Um, in other words, when things get hard or life gets heavy, remind yourself of things that are beautiful. 
right? Remind yourself of, of the beauty of the gospel, right? the beauty of what God has done for you. But you can also remind yourself of, of beautiful things in the world around you. Right? Look outside at the wonder of creation. Look at your spouse and remind yourself of the love that you have for one another. Look at your kids and wonder at the life that God created. Look at a, pe- look at a piece of, of art that inspires you and be thankful for the creative intelligence that God has given us. Regardless of how we may feel at times, there is beauty in the world. We just have to remember to look for it. Now the sixth and final thing that, that Paul says that we can pursue is things that are commendable or worthy of praise. Um, now this word commendable, it's yet another word that's used only here in the New Testament, but it's referring to things that are worthy of praise. Praiseworthy. Our, our first thought is probably about the worthiness of the Lord, and rightly so. Right? That as we gather together, as we listen to music in the car on the way home, um, right, we can sing praise. We can also praise and worship the Lord with our actions, with our lives. However, I think we should also take some time in our meditation to remind ourselves of the praiseworthy acts of others, um, right, especially those who we find ourselves in conflict with, right? If we're going to be known as gentle and reasonable people, we're going to have to do the sometimes difficult work of seeing the good in every image bearer, especially those who we're in conflict with, so that we can earnestly seek their good and love them as Christ loves them. And so Paul ends this passage by encouraging his readers to do what they have learned, received, heard, and seen through him. In other words, they are to be imitators of Paul. Now, as someone who leads, this verse always kind of strikes me a little bit when I read it. Right? In my desire to be humble in the way that I lead, right? I don't want to lead with humility, I would probably struggle to say in a letter that I'm writing to somebody, or a sermon that I'm giving you on Sunday morning, um, right, all right, church, here's what you need to do. Just be like me. Um, that, that would throw me off a little bit. I would be hesitant to say something like that. But what Paul is saying here is that he desires for the church in Philippi to follow the example that he has set. Right, the only reason that Paul can actually say this is because he himself is imitating Christ. Right, so here's the lesson for us. As we seek to be disciples who make disciples, as we seek to love one another, we have to be the kind of people who can give the advice that Paul gives here. Right? We have to set the example in our teaching, in our conversations, and in our actions. Right? We have to be imitators of Christ because those who look to us will be imitators of us. Now, I hope you also see that there is a balance that Paul strikes in how Christians should view and engage with the world in verses 8 and 9. Right, he, tw- he tells them uh, to dwell on whatever is true, honorable, uh, just, pure, lovely, commendable. And at the same time, he tells them to be rooted in biblical truth and Christian tradition by practicing what they have learned and seen in Paul's life and in his teaching. Right, so the balance here right, is that what's true is true right, because it's God's truth. Anything that's good is good because it comes from God. 
right? The Christian life should not be devoid of the enjoyment of created things, right? If God created the world and he said that it was good, then we should enjoy the good that there is in it. Like I said before, there is beauty in the world, and God gave it to us so that we can enjoy it and rejoice in the good, in the good God who gave it to us. But at the same time, Christians should also root themselves in biblical truth so that as they enjoy the good things around them, they don't make the mistake of wandering off into worldliness. Right? There would be error. I would be wrong to tell you that... Um, all that you need to do is just seek after what you enjoy, right? All you need to do is just seek after what brings you pleasure or what makes you happy, right? The Christian life is going to be difficult. It's going to require us to do difficult things, and it's going to require the constant leading of the Holy Spirit and our submission to that leading. And so we can enjoy the good things. But we can also trust that God still uses the struggles and the hurts of this life to produce something good in and through us. And now Paul also implies in verses 8 through 9 that there is a close relationship between our thoughts and our actions. He begins by telling us what to think about, and he closes by telling us what to put into practice. Paul says the same thing in different words in Romans chapter 12, verse 2. When he says, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you will be able to test and approve what God's will is. His good, pleasing, and perfect will. The idea is that our actions tend to be informed by our thoughts. Right? When we allow things like resentment, anger, animosity to start to rule our thoughts, right? we inevitably have to then fight the temptation of letting them influence the things that we do, letting them influence our actions. So here's the the simplified version of all of this. If if you want to treat people the right way, you're going to have to start seeing them and loving them the way that Christ does. In other words, if we want to do Christ-like things, we have to have Christ-like thoughts. So, as we close this morning, uh, I like to think about application. Um, I like to give you some, some, some application points to hold on to that you can take with you into your week. All right, and so as you're asking yourself the question, how does this apply to me and my church? Uh, I think it would be foolish to pretend like there aren't conflicts within our churches, right? Um, even on our best days, there are differences of opinion, and there are preferences, and that leads to conflict, um, right? So let's think about how this passage can help us navigate the conflicts right now, whatever they might be, um, right? But let's also realize that once we get past whatever the conflicts are now, that there will probably be things that we disagree about in the future. Um, and these verses will be just as helpful then as they are now. Just as important for how we love one another then as they are right now. So here's three things that you can commit yourselves to as a church. First, as we seek to love one another well, let's commit ourselves to urging one another to find agreement. 
right, in your conversations with other church people, you're probably going to hear about where somebody disagrees with someone else or where there's conflict between people. And so let's commit ourselves to being like Paul and urging one another to find agreement right, and pursuing love in our relationships. That might look like telling someone to go have a conversation with the person that they're complaining to you about in order that there might be forgiveness and commonality. Um, and it may look like you seeking forgiveness and commonality with someone that you have anger in your heart for. Um, second, as we seek to love one another well, let's commit ourselves to prayer. Um, like I said earlier, prayer is the antidote to worry. Um, when things get hard in the life of the church, it's easy to worry about any number of things, right? We start to get anxious about what we might lose or what might change, but let's commit ourselves to lifting up the things that we're worried about uh, for our churches in prayer. Um, you know, things might change, and we might lose some things, but we know that we have a Heavenly Father who is still good, who is still in control, who still loves us, and who will always give us what we need when we need it. Even more than that, we can know that we have a relationship with him and can talk to him. Now third, as we seek to love one another well, let's commit ourselves to dwelling on what's good. Right? In times of trial and conflict, and um, even, in, even when times are easy, it, it's easy for us to, to dwell on what's gone wrong, right? to only see the negative, to only see where we could have done differently or where we could have improved, um, right? But uh, I, I think in order for us to truly begin um, processes of healing when things are difficult, and in order for us to truly love one another consistently, we're going to have to be intentional in choosing to dwell on the good, right? We're going to have to remind ourselves of the love that we have for one another, even when we disagree, um, and we're going to have to remind ourselves of all of the blessings that the Lord has given us and given this church, even when things are hard. Right? We're going to have to commit ourselves to doing what is just, doing what is pure, doing what is honorable, even when we're not rewarded for it or when those around us might be hesitant to or refuse to do the same. That, to, to sum all of it up, we're going to have to be defined by our love because that's what the church does. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, our time together this morning. God, I pray that as we close, um, Lord, that we would just commit ourselves to loving one another well. Uh, God, thank you for this church. Um, thank you for just the opportunity to, to be here, to preach, um, to fellowship with other believers. Lord, I pray that you would bless this church. Um, God, I pray over VBS uh, in the week ahead. Uh, Lord, it's, a, it's an exciting time. And, and God, I pray that you would use this as an opportunity to um, help the kids of this community see you more clearly. Lord, I pray that you would use it as an opportunity to bring people into the church building who might not normally come uh, on a Sunday morning or, or on a Wednesday night. God, I pray uh, that this week ahead uh, would be a time where you are made much of. Um, and God, I pray that you bless the teachers, bless the kids, and again, Lord, that you would bless this church. And Lord, it's in your name I pray. Amen.